Hello and welcome to this fantastic episode of Conversations on Karate featuring Mr. Joe Saunders. Just a quick word, there's a slight audio glitch that affects my words and Greg's words, but all of Joe's words are completely unaffected, so please tune in and enjoy his wisdom. Many thanks. And we're joined today by Mr. Joe Saunders, host of the Managing Violence podcast and author of Neon Jungle. Hello, Joe, and welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) It's really great to meet you. All the way from Australia. Yes, all all the way from Balmy, Australia, where it is currently... This might be the longest distance call we've done, Sue. Could be. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's not a whole lot of civilization much further away than us. No. <laughs> used to have to travel travel on a boat several months and possibly die to get here <laughs> true yeah it's, yeah it's not quite as bad as that these days but in covid times you know still still it's a bit more challenging <laughs> still a risk well there you go so it's doom and death and we've not even two minutes into the podcast i love it yeah, started off well well, <laughs> uh, it's it's really great to talk to you, and um, it was so nice of Mary Stevens to uh, hook us all up so that we could all chat yes. to you. So thank you so much, Mary. Absolutely rock. So, Joe, tell us about about amazing managing violence podcast. You talk about self defense, self protection. Tell us about that. Sure. So uh, I'll give you the uh, the short version. Is that uh, I grew up doing martial arts. Uh, from the age of four, I started doing started training martial arts. Uh, I uh, was kind of the the only child of my parents who both had older kids from previous marriages, so I was kind of the baby of the family. I was uh, I was, but I'm not overly convinced I wasn't an accident. Just going to put it out there, but but uh, but I was the only child of my parents in, the, in both their second marriages, so I had a lot of older siblings that were uh, yeah a lot older than me. Uh, my my two older brothers uh, in my, from my mum's first marriage were 13 years and 15 years older than me. So by the time I sort of had memory, they were kind of like my heroes because they were teenagers, which when you're three, four, five years old, basically means they're growing ups. And uh, and they were both into Taekwondo and both were national champions in Taekwondo and different divisions. And uh, and I wanted to be just like them. So I, I grew up in the, I guess, the early 90s, really, by uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, at that time given that my brothers were living at home, but we had a steady diet of Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, you know, best of the best and some, some Bruce Lee VHSs and Jean- and uh, Chuck Norris movies. And that was kind of just my normal media diet at home. So uh, by the age of four, I managed to convince my mum to sign me up for Taekwondo classes. And, uh, and the instructor begrudgingly took on a four-year-old because uh, I was the little brother of two of his star pupils. So that was my intro, introduction to martial arts. And, and as it turned out, uh, we ended up moving around quite a bit, like moving towns quite a bit when I was a child for my parents' work. So each time we moved to a new town, I would end up having to start a new martial art because my options were pretty much whatever was cheapest in that town. And uh, and it's usually like, well, you move to this town, your options are kickboxing or kempo. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I'll do kickboxing. And then the next town was like, well, you know, you've got boxing or you've got Kyokushin. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll do Kyokushin. 
and and that was basically my martial arts journey up until about the age of 12 13 when i took a couple of years off to play rugby league uh and then uh as it turns out i, I ended up sustaining a, a pretty bad head injury when i was playing rugby league as a as a 14 year old and couldn't wasn't allowed to play contact sports anymore or wasn't allowed to play rugby league anymore they didn't say anything about fighting so uh <laughs> i was uh, i um it wasn't a, wasn't a brain injury or anything. I didn't have completely negligent parents. I just had a a bad facial injury that needed some surgery, and uh, I wasn't allowed to mess it up any further until until I was old enough to have the surgery. But um, I ended up uh, just lifting weights at the gym, and I, I came in I came across uh, while I was at the gym some guys suplexing each other on mats in the corner of a spare room at the at the youth club. But what are those guys doing? And I wanted over to ha- to ha- have a bit of a inquiry because i was a massive pro wrestling fan i loved wwf growing up and i saw these guys Me like doing, oh right okay cool so we're, we're kindred spirits yeah uh, so <laughs> these guys doing like suplexes on each other and i was like this is this is incredible what are these guys doing turns out it was an amateur wrestling club which is very very rare in australia circa early 2000s uh and uh the coach happened to be a former ussr national assistant coach uh which yeah, it was pretty incredible just to stumble across that guy. And everyone else that was training uh, in that club were early mixed martial arts or NHB fighters. Uh, uh, NHB still, because most of them were still fighting bare knuckle for hot dogs uh, in, in in underground fight clubs. And that was the only people that were really interested in wrestling at that time. So, um, so anyway, I, I started training with these guys. I started doing some wrestling. And uh, anyone who's ever wrestled will tell you that is like the hardest training in the world to do it's a, no one trains harder than wrestlers wrestlers especially wrestlers trained by russians uh and uh so i did basically got flogged every every week for a, quite a while i was 15 16 years old uh and uh i was the youngest in the room i was the only non-adult in the room uh and most of the others were borderline professional athletes so i just got absolutely murdered but it was character building uh and uh as I started to develop some skills in grappling, I wanted to compete, but there wasn't a lot of wrestling competitions in Australia. And uh, as it turns out, there was a judo club training at the same uh, the same PCYC that I was training at. So I started doing a bit of cross training in judo. I found out they had competitions every couple of weeks. I was like, wow, okay, I can actually compete against people in my own age group. So uh, so I got into uh, so into judo competition. Absolutely fell in love with judo because. A lot of my childhood journey had been in Japanese martial arts, but I wasn't very good at anything. Uh, like I didn't really excel in anything as a child. Uh, I was I was kind of a big, heavy kid that just I, like kicking was not my thing. Right? But once I realized that you could grab people and once you grab people, they stayed still. Uh, and it turns out I also had depth perception issues. I had vision issues. I didn't have glasses at the time. I didn't know that. I just thought I was really bad at blocking punches because I kept getting hit in the face a lot. Uh, <laughs> but um, but once I once I discovered grappling, it's like it unlocked my superpowers. Like oh, I don't have to see people to be able to do stuff once I can get my whole get my hands on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and judo was kind of just this perfect uh, opportunity at the perfect time for me, where it combined the grappling that I'd started to learn and started to love, the Japanese ethos or i guess that martial arts kind of a uh, spirit that was missing from the wrestling uh and um and yeah and it just had this, uh, this element of creativity to it because the gi gave you so many more options than like no gi wrestling does uh, in terms of high percentage techniques you had a little bit more creativity in your expression and for me as a 17 year old i think i was at the time 16 17 uh, there was also other 
kids my age that were doing it. So I actually had a social network that was built into it. So uh, judo became my my big passion. I ended up uh, representing Australia in in the in judo, uh, and then in an effort to get better at it, uh, I started cross training in Brazilian jiu jitsu. Um, got started training in jiu jitsu back in let me see 2006 maybe 2005 2006 around that time. Uh, and uh, so look, martial arts just became part of my life and 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 really have been ever since. But uh, the big turning point for me uh, was that I started bouncing in nightclubs when I was 18 years old. So I, uh, I was a psychology student at the University of Queensland, and uh, I was broke like every other psychology student. Uh, I was I was working three jobs like most other psychology students. <laughs> I was I was working as a bottle shop attendant. Uh, I was working as a party DJ, and I was working as an after-hours body collector for a funeral home. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I there's a lot of tangents we could go down from there, but uh, but basically I was looking for a job where I could get paid more money to do one thing, and uh, it turns out as a big kid who's on the on the Australian judo team, you can get paid money to throw people out of nightclubs. So uh, so I took that gig, and uh, that was my first wake up call because I hadn't grown up around real violence. I had a, a fairly stable family. Um, I, I had the odd bully occasion in high school, but really nothing to write home about. Uh, and uh, I got into my first fight. Uh, I signed on to my first shift at 7 p.m. I was in my first fight at 7.05. <laughs> so I was like, wow, okay, this is real now. And I made so many mistakes. I did so many things wrong. I was a big kid. I had confidence. Well, I had the bravado, uh, pretend confidence. Uh, and uh, I had some physical skills, but I didn't have any context for what real violence looks like, what you do with real violence, what the differences are, like why my cardio was gone. Why can't, why can't I do five, five minute rounds with elite level judoka, but I can't do 30 seconds with a crazy Tongan. Like why, why does that happen? Uh, because the crazy Tongan might actually kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the stress is a bit different. Uh, and there's all these different pieces that, that didn't really make sense to me at the time. And I know I'm getting long winded with the short version of my introduction, but, uh, <laughs> The uh, that kind of led me to what are the gaps here? Like, what are the things I'm missing? Why? I, I know I've got I know I can grapple with anybody. I mostly martial arts my way out of most situations that turn nasty. But why was I nervous about having a conversation? Why couldn't I talk to people? Um, and, and how many situations were turning physical because that was the only thing I was comfortable with? Right. These were mm-hmm. these were some of the questions I was asking myself. Uh, and I was still 18, 19 years old. But uh, as it turns out, uh, at the time, uh, Blitz magazine, which is one of our the biggest martial arts magazine in Australia, uh, would do, was doing an interview series with Richard Dimitri from Senshido. Uh, and uh, he was talking about all the things that I was worried about, stress management, uh, communication training, scenario training. Like, it doesn't look like a dojo. It happens in different locations. I'm like, yeah, I get that. Like, this is what happened on the weekend. And I was just obsessed. I was like, this guy gets it. And as it turns out, the reason they were doing that interview series is that Rich was building up to his first tour of Australia. I went in, did his, uh, did a bunch of seminars with Rich while he was in country, fell in love with the material, uh, famously broke Rich's shoulder in a demonstration, which made me feel really bad. Uh, this is a story there on YouTube somewhere. Big, yeah, yeah, I listened yeah. to that on another interview. Too, was it was Ben Ben Myers or something. It's like that. Yeah. It's unfortunate to do that on day one of a four-day seminar. It's unfortunate. Busted up the host. Rich was still doing his thing. So for, for, for those that missed the context, um, Rich used to do this thing where he would call out the biggest, nastiest looking person in the room and show that his stuff worked. Uh, very old school. Uh, and Rich, 
Uh, how old was Richard then? Probably, I guess, mid-30s, late-30s, maybe. Uh, and uh, someone asked, would this work against a grappler? Would your shredder work against a grappler? And he said, well, who, who here is a grappler? And a couple of us put our hands up, and he asked the other guys how long they've been training for. I'd been training the longest to the highest level, and I was the biggest, so he called me out and said, try and take me down. I will make it work. Now, I think this acclimatization, Rich was kind of expecting me to shoot on him like to, like a wrestler, but I was a judo guy. So I, I clinched him, and I, and I threw him with a haragoshi, and a uh, big hip throw, and we were we were not on mats. We were on like a wooden floor in a town hall uh, and uh, busted his shoulder up, uh, aggravated an injury from when he got hit by a car a couple of years earlier. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've just broken the host. Uh, yeah, to, to his credit, he shredded me. He won the scenario, I guess, but I felt awful. Uh, and I became kind of infamous. I had like this little mini pocket of fame. Uh, but um uh, so anyway, I became friends with Rich out of this and uh, became an instructor under him a couple of years later. And and I, I kind of switched from, so I guess the first part of my journey was all traditional martial arts. The second part of my journey was all combat sport. But I always had a love for the traditional arts, even though I was doing combat sport. And then I, I kind of switched to purely reality-based self-defense scenario training, high stress, high impact, high intensity, combative style training. Uh, because my reality was I was working in some really dodgy places and I was getting into violence all the time. Uh, so I wanted my training to replicate that and keep me safe. Uh, but that was just another journey. Uh, and eventually I was like, you know what? I don't want to hang around with paranoid, angry people all the time. Mm, <laughs> like, mm. I, I kind of missed the traditional martial arts again. Like, and, and over the, I guess the next chapter became, where's the sweet spot between all these things? I love doing the sporting martial arts because I enjoy the sporting aspects of it. I love doing traditional martial arts because I love the cultural aspects of it and the fact that no one's trying to actually kill me. Uh, and uh, and I enjoy the the reality-based stuff in moderation uh, because I think it's important that people have context. Uh, and that sort of became the next thing. But um, to, to sort of wrap things up, uh, what I'm most known for is the podcast that I started three and a half years ago. And it was literally just as a whim. Uh, I was looking to start classes again. Uh, so I was looking for ways of promoting what I was doing. And uh, and also, I was an avid podcast listener, and I'd been wanting to I, I just for whatever reason it hadn't occurred to me before to start searching up the authors that I love and see whether they've been interviewed. So the the one that was kind of a catalyst for me was I was searching for Rory Miller. It's like surely people have interviewed Rory Miller, uh, and he had been on a couple of podcasts. But when I listened to those podcasts, it was really superficial, like. They were on a health and fitness podcast, or it was a, it was a sport podcast, or it was a, mm -hmm. uh, it was just something that wasn't what I did. And because of that, it was kind of like getting an interview with the author where we only talk about the blurb on the book, rather than diving deep into. Like I'd read all his books, <laughs> like I wanted to ask him questions that weren't in the books, uh, or wanted someone to. And uh, when I realized that no one was doing that, I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe I could actually talk to these people at a deeper level than what they've been interviewed previously. And as it turns out, it it was a hit. Uh, Rory was like episode number five or six or something that I uh, that I ever did, which blew me away. And since then, we've been able to interview the likes of uh, like Jeff Thompson. Uh, we did one of Jeff's first interviews after his hiatus from the media, which was just an amazing experience for me because Jeff, um, like Watch My Back, was like the the soundtrack or the the, yeah. the, the, the book soundtrack of my my years bouncing. Uh, and uh, and his journey as a human being is just incredible. 
Um, so, but, but Jeff, Rory Miller, Tony Blower, Richard Dimitri, Pam Armitage, Mary Stevens, our good friend, uh, lots and lots of people, pretty much a who's who, even combat sports athletes like Ken Shamrock, Ensign Inouye, Tim Kennedy, uh, lots of well-known people. And it's just been an amazing journey. And I, and I guess probably the, the only other part to, in, man, this is the longest winded short introduction I've ever given. Uh, but uh, the only other part to mention is that professionally, what I do is I'm a workplace violence consultant. So I actually spend most of my time Monday to Friday training regular people or helping develop systems for regular people to manage aggression, conflict, uh, situations that are not life-threatening usually, uh, more just how do you manage that antisocial or disruptive behavior in workplaces. Mm. So uh, mm. that, that's my whole life is more or less about this stuff, <laughs> one, one way or another. So anyway, that's... I won't call it a nutshell because that'd be very insulting to nutshells, but but that's the stuff. <laughs> that is um, you made you, an interesting point about how you you felt like you were too deep in the kind of reality stuff and you missed the traditional <laughs> combat sport. And we were talking before we started about the the craziness of the combative world. It can be. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I do feel like yeah sometimes they're a bit too deep in that end. Um, but then I also feel that we're kind of not deep enough in that end. Like, like everything, it's a balance, right? Uh, yeah. I, I have trained in traditional martial arts places or have met traditional martial artists that would not know a real violent attack if they saw one like in front of their face. Like they, yeah. they have no reference point for what reality is, but which is fine, assuming that you are not training for that purpose, right? Yes. If, if you're training because you love going to karate two nights a week, and you enjoy the social interaction and you enjoy the workout and it makes you a calmer person, then like there is nothing wrong with that. But if you think you're training for violence, but you're not training anything that looks like violence, then you're not really training for violence. Mm. So it's, it's about being very, very clear about your reasons for training and whether your the practice of training matches your reasons. Uh, that's yeah. that's the, the illumination point for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's the that's the conversation that we've been having a few times in the last few months is that um, it's not what people think it is. You know, people are being told you can rock up to martial arts twice a week, um, not to even do a lot of pressure testing, not even spar with each other particularly, and you will get better at self-defense. And we've, we've spent some time sort of saying that that's not really the case. There are some transferable skills potentially, but it's not the same thing. Mm. Is that what is that what you're saying now? Yeah, it's not the same thing. Uh, and uh, I, I just did an episode about this, and it's uh, I'm so I'm a little bit disappointed I haven't ruffled more feathers than I thought I would have. Uh, I expected more, more. I expected some more nasty emails than I received, so I'm a little bit uh, maybe maybe I was too. We'll, we'll try and change it for you. We'll help. We'll help. Let us let us know. Feel free to send some. If I if I offend you in this podcast, feel free to send me nasty emails. Uh, but um, so basically, my point is, uh, I think. I, I kind of liken the martial arts to an old house that's been renovated over and over and, and added to and added to and added to and had been modified and been changed. And like, I mean, I don't know what it's like exactly in the UK. I assume it's probably similar, but like here, it's not uncommon to find a house that was built 70 or 80 years ago. And it was originally a one bedroom and a kitchen and a small living area. And that was it. Right. And the, and the, the bathroom was outside. Like the, the, it was an out, outdoor toilet system and that was it. And then as 
advances in plumbing happen. So, well, we need to bring the bathroom inside, but the inside didn't really work. So we put it on the veranda, right? So we had the bathroom on the veranda. And then over time, another generation says, well, uh, that's a little bit, that's a little bit dated. We'll actually just expand the house out. So the veranda becomes a hallway and then we're going to add on some additional rooms. So and now it's a three bed. And so you end up with this weird kind of construction where you walk into it in 2022 and nothing flows. Like you, you walk into this house and you can't figure out where you should logically go to find the kitchen. Uh, it, mm, nothing mm. makes sense anymore because you've just kind of adapted to a system that a structure that was already there. I kind of liken the martial arts to that house because in some ways we've we've dealing with a base product that was suitable for its time for what it was designed for, but we're so attached to it that we try to shoehorn it into a purpose it was never built for. And I think this is this is the hard thing for a lot of martial artists to relinquish because often a lot of martial artists don't even realize what their what their system was built for. They they're so attached to the narrative that they don't realize that it was always middle class entertainment. It was never about battlefield survivability. Right? Mm, mm. Like that was so far removed. It looks nothing like what you do now. So I think being honest about where your system came from and then looking at okay, how has it evolved. If we if we're now taking karate, which Let's say we let's say evolved in in Okinawa and there's you know, I know there's various disputes about purposes thereof but like okay that's cool and and it, and it was very reactive in nature like if you're attacked this way do this and uh, and here's some you know, how to cause harm to a human being and how to defend yourself which is fine and then we get to yeah you know, I, I guess the first big pivot is World War One World War Two we start seeing some combative research popping up. We start seeing some uh, emphasis on on gross motor skills. Uh, we're starting to get a lot of people that have hand to hand combat experience that are now learning martial arts that are adapting things and going, well, that that wouldn't work that way because I was in the trenches, right? And and I know what works. So we start to see a bit of an evolution there, but still very martial artsified. Like if you look at the combative systems that came out around World War II, it was still very much through the lens of jujitsu or through the lens of karate or the, the lens of what whoever the civilian expert was that was brought in to train people. And then I think we, we, we accelerate a little bit more and there's more psychological research that starts to become available in the second half of the 20th century. And then Vietnam gives us some interesting experiences and, and the Korean War gives us some interesting experiences with uh, reality-based training and how soldiers were trained to, to do better. And then we end up with this real breakthrough moment that happens in the late 80s, early 90s, where people like Jeff Thompson and Tony Blauer and Peter Constantine and those people were, were bringing in Animal Day and reality-based training and multiple attacker scenarios and training in the car park instead of in the dojo and like all these things. Oh, wow. Okay. That's exciting. But it still looks like karate, right? It's just done in street clothes. Mm -hmm. And, and we sort of, and, and as each, each sort of thing moves on, we add and we add and we add, and sometimes we take away, but mostly we add. And it gets to a point where we're not really doing true karate anymore. or We're not really doing true martial arts anymore. We're doing this weird hybrid of martial arts, cosplay, bad acting, um, introduction to undergraduate psychology, and I, and, and but it, it doesn't really have a purpose. I mean, we, we we think we've got a purpose, but we call like we okay, our purpose is self defense, but we also really love doing kata. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's not the same thing. Like that's not the same thing. I've got no problem with you doing kata, but if your purpose is purely self defense, then that's not it. Yeah. So 
my whole take on this is that I think it's time that we divorce this whole. I don't even like the term self-defense. Uh, my my friend Mark Me Young uh, famously says self-defense is a legal term. Like when you say self-defense, you're saying I assaulted him, but I had a reason. Like that's what self-defense means. Mm. What I what I now teach and what I will use every time I talk about what I do is I teach violence prevention and management. Okay, that's it. How do you prevent violence from happening? And if you can't prevent it, how do you manage it when it visits you? Part of that is always going to be the physical skills, but there's an awful lot that is not physical. There's a lot of situational awareness. There's a lot of relationship skills. There's a lot of conflict management. There's a lot of just not being a jerk. Uh, there's there's a lot of making good life decisions. There's a lot of things that go into that that have got nothing to do with Carter or Bunkai. Uh, yeah. And I think that while we try to shoehorn into the martial arts box, we miss all that because we've got no idea how to teach that. Um, and we've got yeah. no idea how you can do drills of stand in front of the heavy bag and talk to it nicely. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's important that we just like, let's get rid of that baggage and let's build something from scratch that is fit for purpose for the reality of the 21st century of what people need to know to keep themselves safe from violence. And some of those skills will cross over, but that's a happy accident, not the uh, not a deciding factor. Yeah. I was um, listening to you to talk on a on a different interview. I remember uh, I was hearing you say that martial artists tend to try and teach verbal. You've heard them say we teach verbal de-escalation, but that's stop, get back. Which is actually verbal escalation. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, not really drilling. Um, you know, talking your way through something if you possibly can. Yeah, and 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 part of that is there's there's never been a curriculum for this. Uh, and this is one of the things that I'm really looking forward to teaching when I get to the UK in, in March and April is actually teaching some seminars on how do you train and how do you teach and how do you add de-escalation skills into a curriculum so that people can learn and get better as opposed to some people that give the gab, some people don't, right? Well, it's like saying some people have power and some people don't. Everyone can be more powerful if they, if they train properly. Uh, so mm -hmm. the same thing works, right? We can still develop these skills and abilities, but a large part of it is people just don't have a framework for it. And also, I'm realistic. I've run martial arts clubs. I know that if people come expecting a good workout and they want to get a sweat on and they want to hit some stuff and blow off some steam and you say, we're going to talk to each other today, like not everyone's going to be happy about that. Again, this is why we need to divorce ourselves from the martial arts side of things because if people come expecting a martial arts class and they, and they get a talking class, they might be disappointed. But yeah. if they come yeah. expecting to learn how to manage violence – then talking is going to be an, an obvious part of that. Yeah. So, so how do you how do you think is a good way of implementing that into a martial arts class? Because I think most people when they when they see martial arts they see self defense, don't they? If, if anyone on the street goes, oh, I'm being bullied or I've had this happen to me, I need to learn how to defend myself. I'm going to go and look up a karate club or I'm going to go look up a jiu jitsu club. And when they get there, they they don't know that what they're doing isn't really self-protection or self-defense. Well, this is the problem, right? Because most people, we, we live in the safest time in human history. Uh, yeah. This is this is pretty much statistically proven. Uh, as much as we think things are bad, like they were a lot worse. So mm -hmm. it, it's a lot of people don't have any reference point for what self-defense should look like or what violence management should look like, uh, including most of the people that think they do. Uh, so it's... And, I, and I'll, I always draw a line there because, as Mary has famously said several times, like a lot of the quote-unquote reality-based self-defense that is that touts itself as being superior in some way to martial arts, it's four bounces by bounces. It is yeah. self-defense 
for yeah large young athletic men who get into other get into altercations that they have to get into by work with other men it yeah. has no resemblance to a 50 year old uh, 55 kilogram female walking home from a bus stop that has nothing to do with bouncing in a nightclub mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, that, that reference point is important because you need to understand who you're training and what their realities are not just say well she needs to learn preemptive striking yeah and then what Right. So I think um, to, to answer your question about how you train it, if you're, if you're going to add it to your curriculum, I like to map things to, to the known. Okay? So, so let's say if we're doing stance, physical stance, how you, how you have balance, how you move, how you stand with, with, appropriate, with, with good posture and power generation, then what's your psychological stance? So that might be your confidence. It might mean how you project yourself. It might mean that whether you, like you can encompass elements of target hardening there. You can talk about just being self-aware of your own stuff so that you're not projecting conflict onto others because a lot of the time we do that. Uh, we're in our own head having an argument for the last three days with our significant other, uh, and we're projecting that that argument on everybody who walks past us. Right? Mm-hmm. And you wonder why you end up with – why does everyone give me such bad customer service? Because you're projecting the energy of a jerk. Uh, so there's a lot of those things we can tie into those conversations about something physical like stance. Uh, let's we're, we're doing kihon. Now we're, we're going to do punches and kicks and, and blocks and so on. Okay, what's our verbal kihon? Listening, understanding, trying to be empathetic, okay, picking up on cues, looking at body language. I mean, there's a, there's obviously you need to develop a just just like you need to learn how to throw a good mawashigiri. You also need to learn how to do these things before you can teach them. But you can actually splice in these concepts with your martial arts training. Uh, we get to Kumite. What's Kumite? Well, that's role play. Now, now we're going to do scenarios. Now we're going to actually break down a reality, a real situation, a real conflict, and we're going to look at how we can apply that kihon, uh, the, those verbal techniques, in this situation. And I, I, everyone hates role play, so I, I, I don't like doing uh, like full bad acting role play, more sort of a step-by-step, almost like a one-step sparring or two-step sparring type approach. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to respond this way. What could you say then? And then you come up with something, and I'll respond in a different way. And that way you take away the acting element and it makes it a little bit more analytical. But, uh, but yeah, so that's one way I'd incorporate that into a traditional martial arts context. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I know, speaking from, from, from the way from, I, I've done yeah, it before I, as well, like anyone that's listening just as guilty as, <laughs> as anyone else. Oh, and me it. too. I, I should clarify, I've done this wrong a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so it's only been in recent years I feel like I've started to grasp how to do it properly. Yeah, well, one of the things for me was teaching self-defense focused. Yeah we're going to do loads of combatives drills and then you go well that's self-defense because it's close range it's not unrealistic sports sparring blah 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 but like you said it's missing all those key points which yeah. you can fit quite nicely into it into any kind of curriculum I guess. Mm. and it's, it's like i've you know brought up and mary brought up you know it doesn't necessarily bear any resemblance mm. to what a lot of your class will be going through in terms of what no. they need to defend against it seems to so often it's, it's not not now but it's always like kind of a guy really annoys you in a pub yeah. well, that's, that's absolutely no help to all the the little boys in there up to the age of you know let's be realistic 16 <laughs> um or you know all most girls who they're not going to get attacked that way yeah and this is this is a huge part of why I think I think when you when you use the term self defense and I'm not saying anyone does this maliciously or ignorantly just it's it's just a limitation of the language like defense it's defending against an attack 
what do we do to prevent the attack from happening in the first place? Yeah. And that's where the violence prevention piece comes in. How do I prevent violence from visiting my life? Mm. And and to your point, Susie, it's it, you're you're spot on, right? The 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 reality of conflict between women and women, men and men, men and women, women and men, like and, and different age demographics and different social constructs and different contexts. Like the way that you might experience aggression or bullying in the workplace might be entirely different to how you might experience it at home, might be entirely different to how you experience it socially, or yeah. when you you are in that bad situation with the random yeah drunk person outside the Seven Eleven when you're just trying to get a yeah try to get a pie right. Uh, well, that that is a different scenario, but that is we have to understand what is the reality, and also you got to understand your students. What's what what is their life? What are their risk exposures? And how often do they want to train? Because if they want to train one day a week, I can't be focusing on the 1% threats. I need to focus on the things that are actually statistically more likely to be an issue for them. Yeah. Um, like when, I, when I've got women in my class, and I've got four daughters, so I've given a lot of thought to how to train women. Uh, but um, and they're, they're all too little to really grasp, but I'm just preparing myself for the future. But um, like the most important thing is, is physical – is confidence – it's boundary setting. It's recognizing red flags in relationships and friendships. It's it's being taken advantage of. Like those are the things that we should be focusing on, not palm heel strikes and headbutts. Like, yeah. That that stuff is instinctive when you let it be instinctive. Like human beings have defended themselves successfully for tens of thousands of years without a single karate class. We can do that stuff. It's the awareness that we lack. Yeah, that was a great line, by the way. That. That, yeah, that was really good. That's what we need to focus on, not palm heels and headbutts. That is that sums it up perfectly, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And I do love a good palm heel and a headbutt, don't get me wrong. Oh, we all do. We all do. Be, be realistic about what you're training for. If you're training for your enjoyment, then do it. Do it's fun. Mm. And I suppose what you said also is like, how much time have you got here? You know, because yeah. if you want to teach this properly to a wide range of people, that's going to take a considerable amount of time. If most of them are there for martial arts, then you really need to separate those things or incorporate, like you say, the, some of the soft skills into the kumite properly. Yeah, and I'm not saying you have to choose one or the other. I would actually go so far as to say do separate classes. Yeah. Like yes. The same, the same way if you've got if you're running a karate dojo, and I'm just going to keep using karate because I because of the podcast. Uh, but if you're using, if you're running a karate dojo, and you have uh, point fighters, and you have kata competitors, and you have recreational mums and dads with little kids, uh, then you will run different classes for them if you have the opportunity to do so because they're going to need different things, right? The the mums and dads don't want to do the conditioning that your 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 sporting fighters want to do, and the sporting fighters won't necessarily want to do the kata that your kata group want to do. So you run different classes. Why not just add an, well, add an additional class of violence prevention and management? See how it goes. Like that's, yeah, that's one thing I've definitely it. thought about doing is is maybe not a regular class, but even if it's just like a bi-monthly kind of Sunday morning session or sun, you know, Sunday evening session um, where we don't come in and do, like you said, palm heels and headbutts. We, we do just the other stuff. You know, and the people yeah. that, the people that want to do it can do it. And people that are, that are more interested in martial arts can just come to the martial arts. Yeah. Uh, look, with, with my seminars coming up, I got asked, oh, what, what equipment should people bring? And I'm like, a notepad. Like, like I, I want to teach you stuff that you remember. I, I can, anyone, any idiot can make you sweat. Right? You, yeah. You, there, there are a thousand people in your own country that can teach you how to punch hard. 
that's not what I'm coming for. I'm coming to give you information. I'm coming to give you context and something that you can apply back to your own training. Go, where does this fit? And and is this serving my purpose? And that's that's kind of my passion now. It's I'm an educator. I'm not uh, a sensei as such. Uh, um, so. Yeah, that's, that's that's kind of where I'm going to now. And and to your point, I think that's a great approach. Like just just run it occasionally. You don't need to do this stuff all the time. The information itself is valuable, uh, and it's not as perishable as physical skills are. Uh, like once you know something, you kind of know it. That whereas physical skills, if you don't practice it, you're not going to be as instinctive and reactive with it. Uh, so uh, this is something. I, even when I was running reality-based training. Uh, I used to tell my students, like, I only ran one day a week of that because I was working and that was that was all I was doing. And they wanted to do more training. Like, you don't need to do that much more scenario training. You'd be better off going to join an MMA club and learning well-rounded physical combat skills if that's what you want to do. And then once a month, come and do a seminar and just top up the reality quotient because it's really just context that you're adding. Yeah. Uh, the physical, still, physical skills remain the same. Uh, and, I, and I think to your point, I mean, adding in something like where you do a, a monthly workshop or a bi-monthly workshop on pick a topic, situational awareness, de-escalation, relationships, predatory violence, social violence, whatever you want to do, and just add that in. That's a, that's a great approach. I like what you said about MMA there, because that is one thing that as traditional martial artists, not so much us, but a lot of the traditional martial arts, you hear that, well, they have rules, not self-defense related and this, that and the other. <laughs> That's that, that's it's usually usually from a voice of insecurity. Yeah. Um, and it it also doesn't understand how easily someone who has been trained with rules can quickly understand that they don't have to follow them when when it's real. Mm. Like, <laughs> no rules, it's, great. <laughs> it's not like you need a lot of practice to stick a thumb in someone's eye, right? Yeah, that that yeah, occurs exactly. to you if you feel you need to do it. It's uh, as long as you're mentally training your headspace that occasionally you might have to look outside the realms of what's normal. And I've made mistakes based upon my sporting training when I was when I was bouncing. Um, I've taken people down when I should have stayed on my feet. I've done things like that that were just kind of instinctive under pressure decisions. Um, but I'm not sure that if I had trained traditionally or in a combative system that I wouldn't have done that anyway. So it is what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell the story, so it didn't end up that bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes so much sense what you're saying. So if you're running a club, how would you even begin to start getting ready for this? So great question. And the salesman in me wants to say, come do my seminars and then you'll well, have I mean, money. but that's valid, right? I mean, that's what you're here to do. You're here to teach. But, you know, uh, uh, with that as well. So so what would you do? So, look, honestly, if um, t- taking any of my commercial interests off the off the page, I would say read a book. Like there are lots of books on this. If you go to go to my website, there's a whole reading list, uh, which is violencepod.com. If anyone wants to go find it, it's under content and there's reading list. Uh, it has a whole bunch of books separated by subject matter that you can learn. And and you don't have to be an expert in everything because you don't have to teach everything at once. You could go pick up a book yeah. like Can I See Your Hands by Dr. Gav Schneider. Great reference point for situational awareness. Okay, so read that book. Understand the concepts that are in that book. Start implementing those concepts in your training. Once you've got time to read another book, go pick up um, Words of Power by Alice Amder. Uh, another great martial artist who's also a, uh, a crisis intervention and a psychotherapist. Uh, he has some great insights into verbal de-escalation. Read that book, start applying those to your training. I wouldn't recommend, going, okay, I'm going to switch gears completely. I'm going to do this what this whole thing unless you've had a really extensive deep dive into it. Because just like you don't want to be a martial artist who does a weekend course and starts a club, you also yeah. don't want to be in a position where 
one people that do know more than you can call bullshit on what you're doing because uh, that will that will hurt but most importantly you're in the even higher position of I don't, I don't know if authority is the right word but people are going to be trusting you to keep them safe yeah. if you're saying if you're marketing yourself as violence prevention and management you don't have the crux of I was just teaching martial arts and like it might work under those circumstances no you're going to be teaching people how to stay safe from violence you better know what you're talking about because yeah. if you've got somebody who comes to you who has a really compromised socioeconomic situation, who lives around violence, who has violent people in their friendship groups or in their family groups, you, you better make sure that what you're teaching them is spot on or else don't teach them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think combination, right? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your students. So we're going to add this in. I'm going to I'm working on this myself. Um, and uh, by all means, start start spreading the good word. But. Just be careful you stay in your lane a little bit until you until you're 100 confident in what you're teaching or do my certification course either way we'll do your certification course absolutely <laughs> well we will get onto we'll that. that but i was um i was also really taken with your talk about um de-escalation because you have three d's don't you de-escalation directive and domination and um i had this uh i saw if, if you don't mind me just like going off a minute i i saw um you know, Joe Rogan's in the middle of a whole bunch of controversy right now with Spotify. And um, it's 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 kind of big. And he never really explains himself. He just does his thing. And you have your opinion on it. Well, clearly something happened. And I saw him on Instagram this morning. He did a video. I spent yesterday listening to an interview with you. And um, I watched his interview. You know, obviously people are gun gunning for him big time. Whatever you think about him, he can be controversial. And... It was like a masterclass in de-escalation. I watched this video and I was very aware of me thinking, I am kind of annoyed with him. I, I really don't like what he's been doing. I've been seeing all these clips and so my head was full of idiot. And I saw this video and by the end of it, I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. He played like, that was de-escalation. <laughs> right yeah, I was going to say, I haven't seen it. It was like, thank was you like, to all my fans. But I, I, I've got to say, I understand where you're coming from. I'm a huge Neil Young fan and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but... But let me say, I, I have these experts on, but they go against the thing. But Spotify have said I should put a disclaimer on. And you know what? They're right. I should do that. I'll get some more experts on with differing views. And, and you should know that I don't prep for this. This is just me in real time. I told a Neil Young fan thing, where um, story where he used to be a bouncer. And uh, he quit his job um, in the middle of a Neil Young concert and went home singing one of Neil Young's songs, you know, showing what a huge fan he was. It was just like masterful. Wow. I need to go check that. It's great. Yeah. But I, I, it's so cool that I was listening to it with your words in my head. So I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, that's de-escalation right there. It's, 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 the closest, it's the closest connection I've ever had to Joe Rogan. So I'll take that. <laughs> uh, I, I really appreciate that. But it, it's, um, I mean, honestly, by the sounds of what you were relaying just there, he showed an authentic interest in what people had to say and why yeah. they were upset with him and, and he didn't get defensive about it. Uh, and that's often the mistake we make when we're trying to de-escalate conflict is we refuse to accept that we did anything wrong. Yeah. Right? We refuse to accept that we were, we might've been the bad guy in the situation because the reality is with nearly every conflict is that the, everybody thinks they're the good guy. Everyone thinks they're the hero. Uh, and and they've been the victim of whatever outrage has happened, right? So the the I hate using the bar scenarios because it just, but it does illustrate a point, right? The the guy who thinks he's being looked at funny thinks he's the victim because the guy that was looking at him funny is 
condescending him, insulting him, challenging him, doing something else. But when he goes up and, and says something to defend himself, now the person who was doing the looking feels like he's the victim because he didn't know he was looking. Right? Yeah. So everyone thinks they're the victim and everyone thinks they're the hero. Uh, and if you can't see the other party's viewpoint, it's only going to escalate. Uh, so the, the appropriate response in a situation like, like that, and I stole this direct from Rich Dimitri. So if anyone's listening to this, you go, I heard Rich tell the same story. Yes, you did. I stole it from him. Uh, <laughs> but something as simple as, oh, I'm really sorry, brother. I've just been staring into space. I, I didn't even realize I was looking in your direction. Can I buy you a drink? How do you punch someone for staring into space? Like yeah. there's, there's no, there's nothing there now, right? The conflict is gone. Um, so being able to understand where the person's coming from, what they need in that moment, and usually what that person needs is they they need to feel a sense of respect and they need to feel a sense of empowerment. How do I make this person feel respected and how do I give them some options so they feel empowered to make a decision about how this goes forward? If I can do those two things, I de-escalate nearly everybody. And in social situations, it's nearly always about respect. So as long as that guy leaves feeling more respected than what he felt when he started the conflict, we've probably solved the issue um mm. if it if it's a uh if it's predatory it's a little bit different but you don't really de-escalate predators okay predators have chosen you because you're a good victim um yeah. so it's more about dissuading target hardening not not projecting the signs of a good victim right Th those are more the things we look at there um de-escalation skills when it comes to predatory crime where it's planned or calculated or premeditated in some way you're not really de-escalating because they're not escalated this is just them using a tool that they know uh, a a strategy they know that gets their way. But certainly with a social interaction or, or some sort of conflict that it, that pops out of nowhere or comes out of an interaction, uh, yeah, nearly always if you can just make the person feel like they've been heard, they've been acknowledged, they've been respected, and they feel like they've been given back a sense of power that here here are some things you can do about that. In Joe Rogan's situation, like if, if you were to say something like, I, I hear you, I understand, I've taken it on board, I'm, you know what, I'm, go I'm going to interview some of the experts that you guys are suggesting. Right now, I'm actually giving you back power because you've chosen, you've you've given me some guidance, and I'm going to listen to you. Hey, you've now made an impact on my show, and if you if you feel so strongly about it that you can't listen to my show, then I totally understand and respect that as well. Right now, we've got empathy, and we've got giving back some power to that person. Now they can decide if they actually want to stop listening to the show because most people that threaten to cancel Spotify will get bored in two weeks and sign up again. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if they feel like they made their point without having to actually inconvenience themselves, they'll go with that. But, but yeah, yeah the Yeah. And and not once did I say stop, get back. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a. Hmm. How 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 do you feel about because one of the things as martial artists that stops or not just martial artists is maybe more men than anything else that stops de-escalation will be ego. How 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 do you feels a good way to kind of get that out of people's heads you know because you, you get someone like you said come and look at you and come and say what are you staring at the ego in that person will flare up and make them go i'm not having this i'm not going to yeah. de-escalate i'm going to escalate further number one piece of advice is just get older uh yeah <laughs> i've had significantly less trouble with that in my 30s than i had in my 20s uh but um unfortunately if you don't get over it you sometimes don't get the, the luxury of getting older uh but um Look, I think the main thing is 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 be able to detach from the initial emotional trigger and see the broader picture for what it is. Okay? And this is always easier said than done, but you need to practice it. Like everything is easier said than done until you practice it. Always detach from the situations. Try to figure out like what it, what actually matters here. 
Like what matters to me if I'm having a conflict at a at a service station with a random homeless guy who has approached me while I'm putting petrol in my car? Like what matters to me is not whether the homeless guy respects me. Like, I had something similar to that happen. Yeah, right. What? Why? Why would that matter to me in the slightest compared to not getting stabbed and getting to go home and tuck my kids into bed? Like, how is that more relevant? And it's just because we get stuck in this emotional loop where we want to participate in the monkey dance, to coin a, a Rory Miller phrase, and where we just want to keep playing our part, we can be good monkeys, uh, and we and we forget about like what actually matters. And if you can continually ask yourself, like, if, and this comes down to a little bit of a bit of that cliche, like a real fighter or a real martial artist doesn't pick fights because they're confident in themselves. A lot of martial artists are not confident in themselves. Mm-hmm. Because they're never really sure if it would work for real or not. And I've trained with an awful lot of martial artists that are eager for that one street fight. They just want that one situation where they get a chance to to do the thing they've been fantasizing about for the last 20 years, just to make sure it would work. And that's a really that's bad crazy to me. It's crazy, right? But there are people, especially younger, you know, twenty-something-year-old guys, that wonder: Could I handle a real fight? Could it work? And they create situations that don't need to be there. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think it's mostly about detachment and staying, per- like, staying sort of analytical about the situation you're in. If I've got a guy who's who's trying to get a reaction out of me, and the context is everything, right? If I'm on my own. Versus if I'm with my kids, if I'm with my kids, it's a no brainer, right? If, I, if I've got young kids with me, like no, 100% priority is their safety. Mm. If I'm on my own, there might be a temptation there to, because I feel safe. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be better trained. I'm going to be like more physically adept. I can, I can manage the situation if I need to. There might be more of a temptation there to engage slightly, um, to, even just to see if I could back him down. And this is another verbal, verbal strategy, right? It's not always de-escalation. There's the domination and the, the directives as well. Um, but at the end of the day, like what strategy is going to work best? Uh, if someone's yeah. out of their mind, if someone's literally out of their mind, like they're, they're so drunk or they're so high that de-escalation isn't going to work, then maybe domination is the strategy. Maybe then that's when like, uh, I think Jeff calls it woofing, right? The, that, that dominating, get out of here. Right? Like that, that real bark in your voice that can yeah. sometimes be the approach provided you've got something to back it up, right? You can, you can, you can yeah. use big. But if you don't appear to be physically able to follow through on them, it's probably not going to work. That's why I don't give a lot of a lot of time to that strategy because it only works for a handful of you know, a, a small section of people. But yeah. uh, I think detaching from ego is mostly about just that personal awareness. Having something that is worth living for that is more important than your own self-esteem is critically important as well. Yeah. That's really interesting. We um we, we once uh, interviewed uh, a really great guy called Mike Clark. Really fantastic guy. He grew up um with some very violent um life, didn't he, Greg? And mm-hmm. um and he said, you know, basically what you're training for is not necessarily real life at all. If someone like he was as a kid or people he knew were intent on hurting you, they were gonna do that. Yeah. And that's right. And this is this is why it's so important. Um and why I actually break up my teaching between social violence and predatory violence. Social violence is where the person isn't really committed to hurting you. They're committed to feeling better about the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That may result in them hurting you, but it's not the goal, right? That was, it was not the, the, the purpose. Predatory violence where someone is intent on hurting you because they want the rewards that come from hurting you, such as the, the power, the esteem, or whether it's just, they want to rob you and they know that the easiest way to rob you is to knock you out first. Uh, Cause then you don't put up so much of a fight and yell and scream and draw attention. Uh, 
that's a completely different situation. Uh, that's and it, and it requires a different strategy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> Run yeah, away well, now. Don't be in don't be in dumb places where dumb things happen. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, like on, honestly, if if you if you looked at every predatory crime that's happened in the last year, and you subtracted all those that happened in the places where it was known that crime happens, you'd probably end up with about 10% as many scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most of the, most of those things happen in places where people know that bad things happen. So if you need to go to those places, one, reevaluate whether you need to go to those places. We live in the COVID era where you can do everything remotely. Why do you need to be in that place? Uh, secondly, if you absolutely have to be, what precautions are you taking to make sure you present a harder target? Uh, like This is just... Honestly, I apply the same principles I would apply to teaching someone about travel safety. If you're going to a third world country, you're going to a country that's got high crime rates, you take extra precautions. Uh, you, you you make sure you have your your uh, car doors locked at intersections if you're going to a place that has a lot of carjackings. Same thing, same rules apply going down the street to a dodgy neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. If you it can avoid going there, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, just don't go to that. Don't go to that place. Yeah. Or, like, or you know, if you're like me and you're, you know, you're driving you're, home from work from when you're 21 your... and um, get lost. Yeah. Well, try not. And to you end lost. up in the wrong. No, but you end up in the wrong place. Like way before mm-hmm. sat navs took the wrong turning. Oh God, hell, fire! This is yeah. not good. <laughs> this is. I, I, I will say, I'm speaking for a place of privilege here, where we're like, if you get lost now, it's because you were you, you didn't manage your phone battery well, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so there's there's probably some some things that could have gone better along the way, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's just a holistic, and none of it has to do with yeah an upper block. Yeah, it's got to do with just making better decisions. You know, I remember yeah. making the decision like, okay, if anything goes wrong, I will jump all the red lights. If I have to do that, I will. I would rather be arrested than end up in a really violent situation where I, yeah. you know, sort of like just make these decisions in your head, isn't it? Like, okay, if anything looks bad, jumping every light until I get back into wherever I need to be. I'm a big fan of blueprinting, which is basically just when you've got time to think, okay, what would I do if this happened? What would I do if that happened? As long as you don't get into an emotional place where you start being traumatized by your own imagination, uh, it, it's which people do. Um, but if you have time to plan stuff and think things through, it just means that when you have that oh shit moment and you have that critical stress, uh, and that hormones flooding your body and you, you, you can't think if your brain at least has a blueprint that it's thought about in the past, you have half a chance of being able to access it. If you've yeah. never thought about the situation, you're just going to panic and freeze. So very, very important that, um, look, I, I think it's useful to think about those things. Like if this happens, then I do that. If this happens, then I do that. If this happens, then I do that. And uh, I even heard a, a guy, I think he might have been a bit of a, a life coach or something uh, on a podcast years ago. He said he applies this to situations he doesn't want to make a poor decision in. Like one for him was like, I I was recently, he was he was newly married and uh, he, for his work, he used to go to a lot of conventions and things. It's like, if I get propositioned by an attractive woman, I will not, uh, I will not share more information than this, or I will mention my wife straight away. Or I will like, and that was his, his way of not allowing himself to accidentally put himself in a compromised position where he might make a poor decision about his relationship. Um, and I thought it was kind of silly at the time, but as I started thinking about it, I was like, no, he's blueprinting difficult situations. He doesn't want to like, it's it's a default response now. Oh, if yeah. I get asked for that, I'm not going to do that. If I get asked to have a drink tonight, I'm not going to have a drink tonight because I'm not drinking. If you make the decision ahead of time, it's a lot easier than trying to make the decision in the moment. 
Yeah. Um, addicts do that all the time, don't they? You know, when they, they go back into situations that are triggers for them, yep. they either have to work out how to say no to the situation that's a trigger or how to cope within the situation when they get asked to do something which is going to trigger them. So they have to, they do, they rehearse it, don't they? So that they know what are my response when someone says, do you want a fag or do you want a drink or whatever it is? And then when someone says, oh, come on. Yeah. Practice that response too. Practice that response. Uh, the will, one thing I will add for context there from martial arts point of view, don't get in the habit of like, if someone gets threatening, I'm going to throat strike them. Make <laughs> <Right? laughs> sure that's not your blueprint because there's a lot of context that needs to go into whether you decide to kill someone or not. So uh, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably allow that one to be more of a uh, yeah make the decision in the moment type situation. Yeah. I, I love it, and I, I love um one one of the things that I heard you say was about pattern interruptions. Could you could you could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it's it's one strategy we can use for de-escalation, uh, which is basically just not playing the part the other party expects you to play. And because it, like pattern has a very sorry pattern uh, conflict has a very uh, reliable rhythm. <laughs> like you kind of it's like listening to a four four song. <laughs> like after you've heard the first couple of bars, like you can clap along because you know how it goes. If that time signature changes, it screws you up and you don't know what to expect anymore, and you're no longer <laughs> clapping along. Uh, so it's a, it's a musical analogy for like one percent of your audience just got what I was talking about. Uh, but um, it's what we're trying to do with a pattern interruption is just be different, so that so that the way they expected this to play out is not what's in front of them, and it's going to cause them to either recalibrate, which is unusual because if they're if they're angry and emotional, that's hard to do. It's hard for them to change their mindset when they're already kind of escalated, uh, or it's going to cause them to just bail. Uh, which is more likely to happen because this just isn't playing out the way I expected it to. Uh, this person is crazy or this person is not playing the game. I needed them to play for me to get the outlet I need to get. So here's a real example. Um, this, this happened to me maybe six months ago, 12, maybe 12 months ago. Now uh, during the pandemic, uh, I was visiting a client site. Uh, I was there to do it there to have a meeting and a, a bit of a risk assessment on their, on their premises. I was there purely in a corporate context uh, and it was a um, it, was, it was a government office which gets a lot of aggression. Uh, I can't, can't divulge too much, but uh, basically they were stopping people at the door. That a security guard at the door, and everyone had to stop. Uh, it was just before QR code, so maybe it was even longer. Maybe maybe it was close to 18 months ago. Uh, but they they had to stop, and then they, someone had to come out and see them through the door, and they had to do their business that way. And it was very unusual for the normal clientele of this particular. Uh, yeah, site. So I just happened to be there for a meeting and uh, I was waiting outside and the security guard stopped me because he didn't know I was coming. So I was stopped outside with everybody else as well. And uh, this guy uh, just absolutely started going off on the security guard verbally, racial abuse, uh, calling him every name you could possibly imagine, uh, banging on the glass like he was really going to town. And I'm thinking, oh, man, like, I, I know I don't work here, but I'm here as the workplace violence guy. And if I don't do something, like, like what? I don't know. I just felt like I'm stuck. Right? Like, I'm so, I, I don't want to, like, physically restrain one of your customers, but like, I'm here as the workplace violence guy. And yeah. there's violence right in front of me. Um, so I just happened to notice that the guy had a Red Hot Chili Peppers shirt on. Uh, so he's he's having this conflict with the security guard, and I'm just kind of dressed in business attire. Like, no, um, I, he probably realized I wasn't you know, there for what he was there for, but he didn't know who I was. 
and he's banging on the glass and the security guard goes inside, leaves the leaves his post, goes inside to talk to the manager, I guess, probably to call the police. And um, this guy's still banging on the glass. And I, I said, hey, 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 bro, how you doing? And he's like, of course, he turned around and faced me, you know, swore at me a little bit. I said, I'm really, really sorry to interrupt. I, I just got to know. I see you're a Chili Peppers fan. I'm a massive Peppers fan. What's your favorite Peppers album? I love to know. And it, it was like the whole world stopped, like the hamster wheel stopped spinning in his head for a second. And then he recalibrated and he said, Blood Sugar Sex Magic is the best album that anyone's ever made. I'm like, I, I agree with you, bro. I agree. So, so you, you don't you don't rate Californication or you think he's, he's like, oh, it was good. But we had a 30 second conversation about Chili Peppers albums. Genius. The security guard came back out and the guy was calm. And he, he had no idea what had happened. And literally, I did nothing. I didn't talk about his problem. I didn't talk about why he was angry. I didn't tell him he had to stop banging on the glass. I just engaged him in a conversation about something else. And it changed the whole dynamic because it caused him to emotionally settle himself so he could actually have a conversation with me about something he was interested in. And we've de-escalated the conflict. So and it was something I used to use a lot working in mental health. Okay, um, because you, you would, if you have information about a patient, if you have information about something they like, something they're into, you start to find the triggers that are easy to to draw upon. Like, how's your daughter going? Uh, just want to be careful. You make sure that's a good relationship, or else that can that can backfire terribly. Uh, but uh, you, you can find things that become distraction points. Just do something that they're not expecting. Engagement in conversation they're not expecting. Uh, and I sometimes draw a connection there with like in martial arts, we talk about flanking. Okay. So you, you don't want to attack from the power box. You want to attack from the side or yeah. you want to get to a position of a position of power. That's what I'm doing. I'm just not attacking force on force. I'm not attacking on the conflict that you think we're having. I'm going to attack you from a different angle. Okay? And you don't even realize you're being attacked. You think you like me now. So um, that's, that's just an example of pattern interruption. Hey, you might be able to use it. That yeah. is very good. Yeah, um, it's, it's a little bit like um, in martial arts, isn't it? It's like circling rather than coming straight on. It's, to, to continue the martial arts analogy, I, I often say like de-escalation should look a little bit more like Aikido and a little bit less like Kyokushin. Right? Like yeah. too much, often we get in front of standing in front of each other, punching each other until someone falls down. Uh, when de-escalation should be about circular movements, it should be about not not absorbing the insults. It should be about redirecting and and. I'm not making any judgment about what's more effective in combat, Kyokushin or Aikido, before anyone complains about that. Uh, but in terms of the concepts, uh, the Aikido flowing, redirecting, moving, not being where the force is, those are the concepts that actually work for de-escalation more so than just bash the guy until he gives up. Makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, there's a lot more things we could we could we could pull on threads there if you want to, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different little concepts that can if, if you start playing with them in your scenarios. You might find creative applications for it. And and once you've got the concepts, it's just a matter of you know, creative problem solving. That's really all it is. It becomes a game. Um, when I started developing this stuff, I was still working on the doors, and it became a game to me because anyone who's ever worked the doors know that can be a really painfully boring job. You spend 99% of your shift with sore feet, sore back, while other people have fun. Um, so for me, it was like if I've got to get this guy to leave – and it's not time imperative because he's not going to hurt anyone. He's just kind of drunk and annoying. I, I'm, I'm happy to spend half an hour messing with him and playing games psychologically until he decides to leave and he thinks it's his idea. I've bored a guy into leaving before. Like, I just kept talking to him about a really boring story until he decided to leave. <laughs> so, that was just my own entertainment. <laughs> so, Brilliant. Yeah. That's absolutely classic. 
I've actually had people that, that, that start off angry at me that end up stuck in a conversation they didn't want to be in anymore because they were too polite to leave. <laughs> like it just, <laughs> it's, you can, you, once you start practicing this stuff, you can kind of just play with people. Um, but I, I will say though that a large part of what gave me the confidence to be able to play with this was that I had the physical skills already. I knew that if it did go wrong, I could, I would be okay. Uh, and, and look, when you're working as a bouncer, like I had a team, I had, I, there's no way that this ends up super bad for me as, as long as I'm paying attention. Um, and certainly if someone did appear to be really dangerous or that I thought they were armed or they started making any furtive movements towards their waistband or something like that, we're not going to stick around and play, play ha-ha games. Like we're going to move on and get this sorted. But for, there, was, there was a lot of people where you could sort of take your time and just play with different concepts and see how they worked. Talk about having the physical skills to back things up. What physical skills do you teach people that don't have any physical skills? You know, Because I guess that's that's most of your clients. Yeah, this is this is a tricky thing because uh, when I'm doing this for organizations, for businesses and for government entities, a lot of the time this is guided very much by their own appetite for training. So mm. a lot of mm. organizations where we have a complete hands-off policy, we do not teach them any physical self-defense. Uh, and while I have issues ethically um, when, when I'm talking to people that are in high-risk roles where people do get assaulted, to not train them feels a little bit negligent. Uh, at the same time, I also understand that as an outside consultant, I don't get to control that policy. Um, so my goal then is to give them the best thing I possibly can within the limitations that have been imposed upon me, which is part of why the de-escalation training became so robust, because we, if that was a limitation, then how do I give you the best possible thing I can that's not negligent? Uh, so that, that became part of that. But um, in terms of training people that are not, that don't have any background, that don't have any any skill sets, I have to walk two lines um, in an ideal world where I have yeah, a civilian audience that I'm not confined by the court of public opinion or whether something's going to look good on CCTV or not. Uh, I, I teach Richard Dimitri shredder. Um, so the, the shredder concept, which is pretty much extreme close quarters. It's about, uh, it's about attacking, attacking vulnerable targets. It's something that everybody can do. Anyone's got working hands can make the shredder work. Uh, I like it because it doesn't require any physical, um, doesn't require physical strength. It doesn't require a lot of mobility. Uh, it works exceptionally well for vulnerable populations in the range which vulnerable people are usually attacked, which is a close range. Uh, people don't pick a fight with a disabled kid at sparring range. Uh, it's it's more likely to be an intimate, close proximity attack. So I, I teach that as, as, a, as a go-to, as a starting point. The other part is sometimes people just need confidence that what they do, what their instinctive actions uh, may work. So I'll stick with, with gross motor skills, especially if it's a slightly younger audience that you know, I don't have reason to believe will have three or four major joint injuries. Right. Uh, so with those people, we, we might work on some gross motor striking, some basics on how to how to control space, movement, th those kinds of basic things. But if people don't have the appetite to train regularly, then any kind of physical skill transfer is always going to be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. more about giving them confidence that they can they can generate force. They can hurt somebody. Uh, I always use the, the the kitten analogy, which is that if you think you're too little to to do harm to someone, try and give a kitten a bath and see what happens. Mm. Right? Like you, you can be a one kilogram kitten and you'll still make that person regret their life <laughs> because <laughs> because as soon as that water comes, like you don't want to get in the you don't want to get wet. So um, that, that's kind of the approach is just giving them confidence that they can do harm uh, and they don't need a lot of training. Obviously, if they have the appetite to train, then that is always better. Right? The longer term, start building some skills, give yourself a better arsenal to work with. But in the short term, 
gross motor skills, vulnerable targets, that kind of stuff. Makes sense, yeah. That and not, not a lot of time spent on uh, lapel grabs either. But, no. <laughs> just, Standing I, at a distance, one wrist grab. Yeah, double lapel grab from, from fighting stance. Why? Show me the data. Show me, where, show me how many of our people have been attacked this way. Yeah, that's the thing as well. We, especially over here, we have statistics that we can really see how crime takes place, you know, how assaults happen. So to not use them if we're teaching that kind of stuff would be pretty crazy. Then you're kind of just guessing, right? And you're like, okay, yeah. well, oh, what are, you, what are you all worried about? Acid attacks. All right, well, I don't have anything for that. Let's do uh, wrist grabs. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't actually have anything for acid attacks either. I don't, I don't have a whole lot of stuff for that. I can't, I can't offer you much, but at least I'll tell people you know what that's a really shitty situation and there's not a lot you can do other than try not to be in bad places and keep your eyes out and stuff but but yeah in in terms of um how i build a physical curriculum it's i, I whenever i go into a, if i'm going into a workplace like i'm doing workplace training for this i always try to do a ride along with the people i'm training so i, so I get some sort of idea of what's the context what are the con- confines like I, I just today i was training an airline crew uh cabin crew uh, try having a fight anywhere on an aircraft Mm. That is, it's really problematic there's no long stances available <laughs> nothing like the, you have no room to move because no no one's really punching on in first class it's usually going to be in in economy uh or in a lavatory so like movement is out being able to position your team is out it's pretty much one-on-one in a shoebox and you're probably going to be cut off at the knees by a seat or an armrest or something so yeah there's a yeah. lot there's a lot of there's a lot of really inconvenient aspects for that. Uh, so if you, you start teaching them, okay, we're going to do a, a wrist grab escape that results in a, a wrist lock and a takedown and then a, a restraint on the ground. It's like, cool, but where are we doing that? Where Where is that going to fit on an aircraft? So um, context is key. Yeah. That's amazing. So, I mean, um, so so somebody who's who's teaching, they can come, you're, you're doing a, you're, I can't speak anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's lost it. <laughs> I've lost it. You're teaching, you're doing seminars. So um, instructors, whoever, they can come to you and they can start learning. Um, so that's that's what you're teaching right now. Is that right? When you're coming to the UK? We've lost Joe. Joe? Oh, my God. Joe, you've, if you can hear us, you've completely frozen. I'm back. I'm back. Oh, oh here back. we go. That was really okay. random. Oh, that's really clever. You're, you're talking, but you're not moving. <laughs> You look like a uh, ventriloquist right now. You do. You have right, a picture of you. There you go. Hi. Hi. Okay. Well, I, th- thankfully, that happened in the middle of a, a natural transition where I think I just finished a point and you're about to ask me something else. So that, that yeah. should, should make it easier to edit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think I was um I was just gonna come to how people could start to get in touch with you and your material and how they could start to get themselves like clued up. And um I know Greg, you had some questions, didn't you? I mean, to be honest, we've we've covered a lot of what I was gonna ask anyway in a way better way than I could have asked it. <laughs> so <laughs> the only thing I want to know is is, is, is about is, seminars. What can we expect? Because I I definitely want to try and get there and then probably do as well too. I do. I I seem to. I had a quick look. You do them on Zoom as well. Are they in person only? So t- tell us about what you're doing and your stuff and how we can all access it. All right. So uh, so I guess the the main thing I guess especially for, you, for your listenership 
uh, is I'm going to be in the UK at the end of March and into early April. And also Switzerland, if anyone's listening from Switzerland, I'm going to be doing a, a quick stopover in Switzerland, just because why not? I'm already coming all the way to the UK. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I am in uh, Oxfordshire in on the, sorry, the 26th and 27th of March. So 26th, 27th, 28th of March with Mary Stevens. It's a Saturday through Monday. Uh, so I'm doing the Managing Violence Masterclass Weekend. So Saturday is all about social violence. It's about all the different aspects that make up social interactions that turn into violence. So a lot of what we've talked about already, the de-escalation, the conflict, uh, sorry, communication as a martial art. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the predatory, so not predatory cues, the social violence cues. We're going to be talking about managing stress and adrenaline. We're going to be talking, and we're going to do a little bit of physical skills as well. There will be physical components to each of the days. Uh, but day one is all social violence. Day two is all predatory violence. So we're talking a lot more about uh, recognizing predatory and manipulative behaviors, recognizing con artists, uh, relationship red flags, a lot of information there about just not getting in the line of sight of a predator and how to recognize when someone is predatory. And it doesn't mean they're planning to murder you and you know, collect your toenails or anything. Like It, it could be someone who is going to try and rip you off or is going to try and borrow money and not pay it back. Or it could be yeah. someone who's going to steal your identity. I've right? been hearing, hearing about that on um, dating sites. There's been some news stories in this country about um, people being groomed for like two years on dating sites um, and then losing all their money. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, if, if you're doing it online, you can, that's infinitely scalable, right? As many, as much time as you have for conversations, you can be grooming 50 people around the world. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as someone presents themselves to be a harder target, you move on to someone else. It becomes a, it's a business. Right? So how do you recognize that, that kind of stuff, both in the real world and virtually? Uh, the predatory violence, uh, physical component is a little bit more higher end because if you find yourself having to fight off someone who has already made the decision to hurt you, uh, chances are you're going to end up um, in, a, in, a, in a more violent or a more dangerous situation. So higher levels of force may be appropriate. In the social violence one, we stick within the confines of if this is a social interaction, we may not be dealing with a real bad guy. We might be dealing with a good person having a bad day. Do you want to be maiming that person? Do you want to have? Do you want to kill that person because they were having a real bad month and they just happened to do something out of character and you've now decided you're, you're going to practice that move you've been thinking about for 20 years? Um, we talk a lot about the realities of violence, and this is this is a really important topic, which is violence isn't over just when the fight's over. Uh, I I'd had this conversation on an American podcast just yesterday, actually. Uh, it's an American podcast, very home security centric, uh, called The Safest Family on the Block. Uh, and a lot of a lot of time when I talk to Americans, especially about home security, home home defense, there's a lot of someone breaks into my house, I'll just shoot them. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> um, and and I, I get realities are different. And certainly, if I was living in America, I'd probably be armed all the time too. Like I get that, but. Uh, no one really stops to think about what's the impact on my six-year-old and my eight-year-old when they come out in the middle of the night and they find a corpse on the doorstep. Like what that that's that's what that impact is. It's not about whether you successfully defended yourself, whether it was a good shoot, not good shoot, lawful, justified, whatever. Like how, how much do you want to put your kids through? I am. Um, how, how, how much do you want to challenge your relationship with that? On that point, I was I saw something on I think it was on Reddit actually. I was looking at some self-protection martial arts stuff someone uh put a question up of was like you know when when was the time that you had to do something that to protect yourself or your family and, and someone put this it was like it was a terrifying story of he was a 14 year old he was at home with his i think eight-year-old sister and someone 
was breaking into the house and it essentially resulted in him killing the person with his dad's gun and you know like you said most people go oh that's that's it i do that and he was saying you know he his sister was on the phone to 911 at the time you could hear the whole the shooting the conversation before and he had to listen to that over and over again in the court proceedings afterwards and just how much that messed him up yeah let alone the fact that you even a successful criminal defense is probably gonna set you back a couple of hundred grand yeah Do you have money oh, yeah. around waiting to defend yourself yeah and then the civil trials that might come afterwards even if you're acquitted criminally uh, and then like and then just the the fact that your relationship is most likely going to break down because not a lot of not a lot of people plan for that in the marriage counseling about what to do if your spouse kills somebody. Um, so there's there's a lot of pieces to violence that are more reasons why it should be avoided at all costs. Not to say there's never a good time, a good reason to fight. There's plenty of good reasons why you should fight, but you need to make sure you're making clear headed decisions about that with all the facts. Yeah. So that, that we talk about that on both days. Uh, and then the third day is instructors only. So it is, uh, I've called it a certification day. It's a managing violence certified instructor program. Uh, and basically what it is, if you do the first two days and you're, you're an existing instructor with students, like, so I can, I can kind of vouch for the fact that you probably like know something <laughs> uh, and you've done the first two days and you kind of have a grasp on how to teach. Now we're just going to gap fill. Uh, that third day is all about plugging in some of the gaps that don't aren't traditionally taught in martial arts like how do you teach this stuff how do you teach a little bit of psychology how do you teach a little bit of de-escalation how do you plan scenario trainings that it actually makes people better and better able to manage those situations rather than just scared and tired Mm -hmm. right which is the Mm -hmm. usual outcome of scenario training when you don't really know what you're doing um how do you do lesson plans how do you do curriculum design how do you set up a long-term progression for someone in violence prevention and management not their ability to do a kata not their ability to spar better like what's their long-term progression in violence management so we cover a lot of those skills trauma-informed coaching psychological first aid some bits and pieces that we need to touch on if we're going to be training these populations and the idea out of that is that you don't it's it's not a grading it's not some sort of insurance scam um i'm not going to pay for you to get any like town hall rentals <laughs> uh all you what you get out of that is a certification that i as a for whatever my brand is worth uh can vouch for you as an instructor when inevitably like every, every week i get several people that will reach out to me and say do you know someone in my area who teaches what you talk about and i can say yes i know this person in this area who i know has a grasp on these concepts because i trained them uh and you get that referral there'll be quarterly there'll be quarterly webinars for professional development on these topics and similar topics so it's like an ongoing professional development program as well um that it's it's really just to assist instructors like you mentioned that are trying to make that transition between what they do now and what they'd like to do but they're not quite sure what the journey is that's what the certification is for it's you're not going to learn new new techniques there's no managing violence approved left hook like that's that's just like you do you do what you do uh, i'll fill in the gaps okay that's that's pretty much the, the approach so that's um that's that's with mary in uh oxford and then uh the following weekend i'm in birmingham with tommy joe moore oh sorry i should I should mention in between the tuesday wednesday thursday i'm in switzerland in zurich uh with uh uh functional fighting uh hosting two days of public seminars there and then a closed door seminar on the thursday Come back to the UK on the Friday after hopefully seeing a couple of hours worth of Zurich. <laughs> and then uh, uh, I'm in Birmingham on the second and third uh, doing a joint seminar with Tommy Joe Moore. This is going to be the fun seminar of the group. 
Uh, Tommy's a great guy. If you haven't interviewed him, you absolutely should. Uh, Tommy is a martial arts historian. He's a boxer. He's done every martial art you can possibly imagine. And he can talk to you about it in like a really nice teacher's voice because he's a former school teacher as well. Uh, But uh, so we're doing a joint seminar. The first day is going to be half sumo and half boxing. Uh, Because one of the things I didn't mention is I also represented Australia in sumo. So Tommy learned that and he's like, we've never done a sumo seminar. I need you to do a sumo seminar. I seem to be so good. (laughs) So I'm doing the the combative application of sumo wrestling uh, and Tommy's going to do boxing or combative application of bare knuckle boxing. uh, That's day one. Day two, I'm doing a lot of my de-escalation material and he's he's doing how to teach. Uh, So an actual session on how to be a good teacher, uh, which is... um, it's going to be super fun. So that's second and third in Birmingham. Uh, then let me just see. There's a few other bits and pieces we're plugging in along the way. There's probably going to be a, a dinner event for people that don't want to get sweaty. They just want to come and chat. Uh, we're probably going to do one of those in Birmingham as well, or possibly London. We're not entirely sure. Uh, I've got a speaking event somewhere in uh, either the fifth and sixth in Blackpool, still waiting for that to be confirmed. And then the last weekend, the uh, 9th, 10th and 11th of April, I'm going to be in Cambridge uh, doing basically a repeat of what we did in Oxford. So, uh, so yeah, so there's, there's plenty of opportunities and uh, if I'm also very much open to any clubs out there that while I'm, I'm pretty much full up for the weekends and the full day bookings, if there's any clubs that want me to come along and just teach a two hour workshop or they, they want me to take over their regular class and teach some of my stuff, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone who wants to do that as well. That's amazing. Awesome. Just go to violencepod.com forward slash UK tour and yes. uh, that will give you everything you need. Yeah. That sounds yeah. amazing. That, that really does sound so good. I kind of wish I was an instructor now so I could come to day three. <laughs> <laughs> Might be able to sneak you in the back door. You, see, you, you, you can, you can uh, operate the camera. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I can just sit and watch secretly. Now that, that sounds absolutely amazing. And and so you so you can do Zooms for people if they can't get there. You could do a Zoom um, session for people outside of the seminars. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I I do do hourly coaching on Zoom as well. If people want to have a one on one, I mean obviously it's a conversation. It's harder to <laughs> harder to teach some things, but yeah, for uh, sure. Absolutely, we do that. Uh, I with the instructor cohorts because those instructor days are running on Mondays. I understand not everyone's going to be able to get there. Uh, so I'm going to be doing an online cohort as well. Uh, so we'll basically break down that day into seven uh, seven one-hour blocks over seven weeks, and people can can log in and do uh, yeah catch up on the, those lo- those blocks and still get certified uh, just in their own time because I understand people have jobs and stuff. So mm. uh, that, that's something we're working on as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm more than happy to do virtual. If anyone's still doing virtual deliveries for their martial arts groups, I'm happy to do seminars that way as well. It just depends on what's available to you and what works for you. That sounds absolutely awesome. And that's something I was wondering about, actually, that it's so great that you've got so many people around the world who are familiar with the material. Because um, I was wondering if you're in a club and you're looking for someone to help you find this material, that um, how would they find them? And uh, and you have this network. Yeah. One of the things I'm most excited about from the certification group, uh, and this is this is the first one. So the, this UK tour is the first time I'll be running this. So I'm actually going to have certified instructors in the UK, but not in Australia. Uh, <laughs> the first Australian ones are happening after I get back. So that's, got, that's a little bit back to front. But um, one of the things I'm most excited about that as well is that uh, part of that will be a private group. So where certified instructors can just talk to other certified instructors and there will be people in that group that have been doing similar stuff for years who will have insights into how to teach something, how to manage a situation, how to how to get a student who might be struggling with a little bit of social anxiety to participate in de-escalation drills. 
Um, there will be people that will be able to assist with that. Uh, and that's going to be super a super cool resource to have, not only for students, but for me uh, to, to learn from the people that I'm training. Well, you know, I could sit here and ask you questions about this situation or that situation and just put them to you for, for hours, I feel like. But um, I think we're all just going to have to wait for the seminars to to go further with that. And uh, I also know that you have to get weaving. So um, I was wondering, do, uh, do we have any more questions? Greg, do you have any more questions? I, mean, I, could, I could ask questions all day, to be fair. <laughs> um, it's to be honest, it's... it's it's, I don't want to sound like we're shitting on the combatives group, but it's nice to hear this talk without the idea of, you know, like you said, shouting and screaming and, and headbutting and biting and eye gouging. It's it's nice to have this view on it. And, uh, and look, I, I will I will say that I, that that was me for a while, uh, and it was I, part of part of this is just like I grew up, I got a corporate job, I got married, I. Kids, I, I realize that that's not how functional human beings interact with the world. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, you know, to, to be able to be interact with the world, you have to kind of adapt to some social norms. And uh, part of, it wasn't necessarily like I had to change myself. I had to grow. Uh, and, I, and I had to look honestly about – I remember got, got, the first time I wanted to do a workplace violence contract, and they're like, well, no, you can't teach that. It looks too aggressive. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean it looks too aggressive? Do you want your staff to be killed? I was like, yeah, but then when you start looking at it from the organization's point of view, what does what staff assaults cost us versus what does PR damage cost us? Right? And, and if you can't look at it from that lens, you can never have a career in that space because you're not speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you need to be able to look at it through a risk lens. What is the risk to the organization? And what's their tolerance? What's their appetite? Like, how much... Like, what are their staff? What's the staff attitudes? Like, how much does it impact? Like, right now, the equation's being moved around because everyone's got a staff shortage. So now everyone's trying to look after staff because people getting spat on makes them want different jobs. So, uh, but you have to be able to adapt to the surroundings. And I think uh, combatives is absolutely always going to be a part of what I do, but it's not the whole game. It's, It's a subsection of violence prevention and management, and I'm happy for it to stay that way. But just the same way that I I know people that uh, say let, let's say do karate uh, or any other traditional martial art who if I was in a war zone I would not want them watching my back right because they're honestly Bob's an accountant and uh, he has a dodgy hip and the last time that one of the kids got blood nose he almost passed out right so I wouldn't want Bob watching my back but I know that doing karate makes Bob a better human being. Yeah. And I would be happy for Bob to watch my kids because he's a nice human being. And that is just as important as whether you can kill a terrorist. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that it is infinitely more important than whether you can kill a terrorist. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're less likely to attract terrorists. But uh, honestly, that's kind of how I approach everything now. It's like everyone has their thing to offer and and by no means are all combatives people nuts. Uh, but um it's it's does does your training make you a better human being does it make does it enhance your quality of life or is it something you're doing out of fear and paranoia in which case it's not a healthy thing you should probably be doing something different go do bowling or something um, um but yeah, yeah, yeah that's 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 a really good point it's a really good point and like you know the best self-defense ever isn't it it's just it's, are you getting some enjoyment which in turn makes you more confident makes you rather than spending your evenings walking around dark alleys you're spending your evenings doing something you enjoy instead yeah, and, and look, why, why spend hundreds of hours preparing for something that is probably never going to happen if yeah. you live in a first world country 
and you're married and you have kids and you have regular hobbies and you don't have dodgy friends. Like if, if that's you, like train because you enjoy it. Do some of this stuff, like do some of this stuff for a bit of knowledge and a bit of context and, and, and some, I guess, some acclimatization to a world you don't belong in in case you find yourself there. But you don't have to obsess over it and turn yourself into a, you know, a, a very pale John Wick. Uh, this that's not it's not really what we should be trying to do no yeah but yeah oh, you, you're absolutely right this is really really good it's, it's really about looking at what is likely to happen or what could happen finding out how to handle that and mm. then at the rest of the time like you say being confident training because you like things doing things that make you happy and more confident can I, can I just add, because I, I know you're trying to wrap this up and I keep going off on new tangents. But, no, you um, stay as long as you on, like. You as you're, as you you're, you, we have you, time. You do you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying this conversation and it's very topical for me. Uh, we've talked about de-escalation of violence, but if you man- learn how to manage conflict situations, which is really what de-escalation is, it's managing conflict. Uh, it, it's a conflict that is in front of you. You need to manage it. You need to try and de-escalate it or try and redirect it or whatever. Uh if you learn how to manage conflict, there is no downside to being better at communicating. Like, there's absolutely zero downside to being a better communicator. I use the de-escalation skills I worked, I, I learned as a bouncer or I practiced as a bouncer. I use those skills for getting my kids to go to bed. Uh, I use these skills exactly with a client last week who uh, we sent a report that they weren't overly thrilled about. And I could hear in the tone of voice, I mean, it wasn't like he was going to like come to my house and punch me in the face. I could tell like there was a disappointment, there was there was frustration, there was a feeling of betrayal because we've said some things that weren't uh, that necessarily agree with. Like there's there's some stuff, there's some emotion, right? And I was confused by it because I thought I didn't think we did anything that was that bad. But then I realized, okay, I don't understand the context. I don't know the conversations he's had that day. I don't know what pressure he's under in his job right now and why this might be a problem for him. So I use the de-escalation skills. I acknowledge what he was saying. I, I I repeated back what he uh, I I empathised with him, so I, I'm really I'm really sorry if we missed the mark on this one. Here's what I think we we're trying to say, but perhaps we didn't explain it properly. Uh, but understanding your your context of what you need, here's what I'm here's what I can do for you. We can do either option A or option B. Which one would you prefer? So I've I've made him feel respected and listened to and validated, and I've given him some options which makes him feel empowered. And then we've got a directive. Two days later, client's happy. Because uh, we we just changed the report a little bit to to be more in tone of what they're looking for, yeah. right? Yeah. That's just a corporate context of being able to listen, de-escalate emotion, and I, my there was a part of me that wanted to get defensive, going, "No, you engaged us to do this, and we did it, and we're subject matter experts, and blah blah blah." Like the part of me wanted to do that, no doubt, uh, but it was better to manage a conflict mm-hmm. and and to, mm-hmm. and to end up with a better relationship than what we would have had otherwise. See, this is the thing. If you have a customer and things go really bad, um, if you manage to handle it really well, you'll often have a better customer afterwards than you did in the first place. Yeah. I mean, what what do you think about the friends that you are closest to in your life or the relationships you are closest to in your life? Are they the people you've never had an argument with or are they the people that you've been through some stuff with and they're still there, right? Yeah. Those, are the, those are the relationships because those are the people that get you when you're not at your best self but you know that you have a love and respect for each other to be able to pull through when those situations happen. The ones where you don't pull through, you're like that person. I, I thought I, I did like them, but Oh my God, see what she did. Like, and that's a relationship it's over. And you don't read, you don't even consider that person in your life anymore. So usually our closest relationships are those where we've managed to learn and, and manage each other's nuances and conflicts and 
like like a good marriage it's not because you never fight it's because you tend to like you understand each other <laughs> so um yeah anyway we, we can go on for days but learn how to manage conflict it's much more important than throat strikes and headbutts yeah there you go that's the that's the title of the episode i think it's gotta be it's gotta be <laughs> It's the best point it's to end point. it on. Learn how yeah, to manage conflict, sure. and everything will get better. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, my absolute pleasure. I had a lot of fun, and we talked way longer than I expected, and I'm not upset about it. So it, it's what That's we do. Awesome. We just yeah. we just talk a lot. It's it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And it's oh. been uh, it's been an education to listen to you. Thank you so much indeed. Very so, much. Good luck with the tour. I uh, hope it goes amazingly well. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make sure that um, we link up with your pages and everything on Facebook and share your posts and stuff. Where, where are you guys? Whereabouts in the UK are you? We're in Somerset. Okay. All right. If, if, if the dates don't line up, I'm more than happy to grab a pint and a schnitzel or something. Right. So. Oh, that sounds awesome. Pint awesome, and schnitzel. Yeah. We'll, definitely, we'll definitely sort something out. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you, thank you very much. It's been Thanks, a Jay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.